Welcome to the Time Lords podcast. We go beyond the buzzwords to learn exactly how people are building the industrial internet of things and using time series data to transform their business. I'm your host, Lonnie Bowling. Today, I'm joined by guest Kyle Kotash uh, with Deschutes Brewery to talk about all the stuff that Kyle's been doing with um, Pi and time series data uh, at his workplace. It's uh, super interesting stuff around machine learning, uh, just using the uh, data to drive his organization. And I know, Kyle, you've been working on this for, uh, you know, for several years. So I'm super excited and interested to hear what you what you're going to share with us today. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, hey, um, for folks who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, no problem. Um, so I am the senior data analyst at the Shoes Brewery at the Bend, Oregon facility. Um, I've been with the Shoes for just over five years now mm-hmm. um, and uh, started with the company as a production brewer. And my background is in physics. So as the need came up, um, Mm -hmm. I moved into more of a um, analytics position, sort of along the same timeline as we uh, invested in the Pi system. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I started working uh, in our operations technology group um, and mainly focused on uh, data collection and analysis in Pi, and then um, that data that we've been collecting, mm-hmm. uh, and um, you know, our asset framework configuration has kind of changed the way that we operate. Okay, cool. Thanks for the thanks for the introduction. And uh, so I know that uh, before, uh, before we started, we were talking a little bit about some of the projects you're working on. And, um, just to start it off, I guess, uh, you want to like give, give everybody kind of an overview of what you're doing around the uh, machine learning stuff. I know that, uh, you're doing some predictive analytics with machine learning. And I think, uh, we both agree that would be super interesting to talk about. Yeah. Uh, sounds good. So we, um, we had a couple scenarios surrounding, um, manual measurements uh, for our active fermentations that um, we thought would be a really good opportunity to use our historical data to develop a machine learning model. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's in a way it's two separate projects, um, but they kind of cross uh, a little bit. One of them is uh, predicting the rate of fermentation or our um, apparent degree of fermentation prediction uh-huh. is okay. um, as the yeast consume consumes the sugar uh, present in uh, in the in the wort or in the beer fermenting, uh-huh. uh, it's producing carbon dioxide and alcohol. Um, and as that sugar is um, consumed, the density of the beer drops. So that's sort of a primary measure of when a fermentation is finished or not. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, we measure that density, um, and now we actually can predict the rate at which that um, density decreases. The other project is um, diacetyl reduction, and mm-hmm. diacetyl is a uh, visceral diketone that's actually produced by the yeast during fermentation. And in later stages of fermentation, 
um, the yeast, uh, convert that to a less, um, noticeable flavor. Um, and we have, uh, specification limits for our products where we want the diacetyl level to be, to be below a certain threshold. Okay. Uh, and I mean, relatively small amounts, um, uh-huh. and, uh, give the beer almost a buttery characteristic, uh, both aroma and flavor. And, oh, that's, interesting. and that flavor threshold is around uh, 50 parts per billion. So wow. relatively low, uh, <laughs> low concentrations. Uh, we have yeah, to no kidding. that with uh, gas chromatography. So um, you can imagine taking multiple measurements across our 50 fermentation vessels. Wow. Uh, for uh, gas chromatography, uh, that can it can be a, a relatively time-consuming process. So we wanted to uh, develop uh, an algorithm to do some of that work for us. Okay, so so it sounds like then um, so before you implemented uh, this predictive analytics routine, there was a you had people that would go around and take a lot of measurements on the batches and just to, um, to measure these, these different components. And then, and then what, and then, then when I, when, when they finally got to a certain threshold, then you would go ahead and that would signal you to do your next step. Is that what yep. was? Okay. Yeah. For the, um, ADF or apparent degree of fermentation model, um, when that, that fermentation reached, uh, a certain, uh, uh, specific gravity or density, um, the brewer would essentially transition the fermentation vessel um, using our control system uh, to the actual start of diacetyl rest. Mm-hmm. Um, that transition uh, is um, basically increasing the pressure in the tank or sealing the tank. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, for the diacetyl reduction, once we get below our specification limit for that specific brand or label of, uh, of product, mm-hmm. um, we actually turn the glycol jackets on the tank on and begin to cool the tank. Okay. Um, once the tank starts to cool, a lot of the metabolic activity starts to cease. So it's right. really important that we don't start cooling the tank before um, we've uh, reduce the diacetyl to below our specification. And, okay. um, that's kind of the, the process. So, so tell us, tell me a little bit about your journey through this, through this whole, this whole, um, so, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, obviously the, the brewing, the beer is a, is an understood process, right. And, and it's been going on for a while and, 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 and I'm sure there's a, a manual way that all these measurements are taken, right. And they're monitored. And then finally you get to a point and I can, I can picture it in my mind, uh, with, uh, you know, uh, with, with these steps happening in a manual way. So when you, when you first started the project, uh, you're, you're collecting data off of the, um, I don't know how much data you're bringing in automated or how much data that you're bringing in from the manual readings, but uh, imagine you're starting with some data sets and then somehow you needed to, uh, you know, come up with a, a way to predict this, uh, these, these processes and, and when things are going to happen. So how, how did you approach that and, you know, kind of like 
what what was the uh, process and how long did it take you to figure out how to get this to work right? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. So when we first kind of hatched the idea that this was something that might be possible, we mm -hmm. um, if I remember correctly, we were actually at a OSIsoft user conference in San Francisco when, mm -hmm. we, when we started discussing this, and I think um, we approached our um, uh, connections at OSIsoft, and they introduced us to um, a data science team at Microsoft, and they really okay. um, kind of rolled it out for us. Uh, they did the initial data exploration um, and uh, sort of uh, function fit for the project, uh, which was really, um, really the foundation that we needed to get started. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was, I believe, around two or so years ago. But then really we ran into challenges with just um, being able to validate that the curve was correct um, and convince folks in operations, whether they be brewers or lab technicians, that um, they could actually, you know, trust the function, right, right. The, the algorithm, and, you know, we wouldn't end up ruining products. So I think exactly. really the, the, and then on top of that, you know, we decided that, um, you know, the way that this algorithm was working could potentially be streamlined. And that was, I think, really when um, I started to uh, hit stride with the project and, and make a lot of progress in not only um, how fast the algorithm can crunch all the data, but mm -hmm. so, um, validating that output and making sure it's accurate and providing the sort of reporting tools to convince uh, really everyone in operations that this is something that, that works and we have some certainty um, that we're not going to ruin product. Oh, that's interesting. So you had to, um, I mean, once, you know, you, you went through this process and, and, and got some experts involved to, to develop this, um, this fit uh, for your for your curve and, and figuring out how to how to run your data through that right and, and produce a result yeah. and, and saying okay this is what it's predicting and then and then I'm sure you're you know matching that up with with a bunch of different uh, batches and different types of product and everything like that and just really validating that it's working in your mind but then um, that wasn't really enough right you had to uh, you, you had to win over the uh, the people in production because uh, they know the outcome, right? If it doesn't work right, they know that they're gonna, you know, yeah. they're gonna lose batches and it's gonna cost money. And, you know, it's kind of like their, their work is now on the, on the line here. So it's not a, it's not, so that, that must've been, uh, I mean, how did that go? How long did it take you to, to really, to really convince uh, the, the production folks that, you know, this was gonna work and, and, and for them to give it a shot in, in, in the real world? Yeah, so um, really, I think it all kind of started to turn around um, uh, about a year ago, which mm -hmm. seems like a long time mm -hmm. uh, that I say it was a year ago. <laughs> but yeah, I see it was like last spring, I guess, um, after the initial iterations of running the algorithm and then some of the progress that um, 
we were able to make on on its functionality um and then you know running the the uh training sets and the test sets and kind of developing that validation for the model uh when it was kind of realized that um we actually really had a business need um due to uh seller capacity um and uh we actually had a uh issue with our glycol um refrigerant system mm-hmm. um where we needed a new uh chiller uh mm-hmm. which that was going to be close to you know 70,000 i believe mm-hmm. to do so. there was this huge capital cost associated with replacing it was actually the backup chiller mm-hmm. so what was happening is we were cooling too many tanks at the same time and uh we what we figured out is those those fermentations have a natural stagger because they're coming from uh one brew house right so mm-hmm. we only, uh produce one batch of beer at a time and so they're the start of fermentation is naturally spaced out about you know depending on the size of the tank anywhere from four to you know 18 hours so we figured if we could use the diacetyl reduction predictions the start of cooling should follow that natural stagger. Um, and uh, if we could not turn on the backup chiller, we could, we could not, um, we could cancel this capital investment uh, to replace the backup. So I think once that business need was identified and mm-hmm. we showed that, you know, from our test data sets that we would naturally space out um, the start of cooling for those vessels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's when it really cued people like, Hey, this could, this could make a huge difference for the company as a whole. Um, and also, you know, streamline workflows. Um, and it was just really cool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so I think once, once we really got, um, sort of, our, sort of like our, our primary stakeholders in this, which would be our quality control, um, and our, our brewing seller, um, uh, brewmaster and, um, our technology team. And we really sat down, talked about, you know, how this model was actually working, um, and how we were validating it. And then really listening very carefully to the feedback that we were getting from them and what they needed to see, mm-hmm. uh, in order to feel comfortable with using it. And then addressing those concerns either with um, a backend analysis or validation, right, that showed that we could account for those specific concerns. Um, And then also um, finding ways to uh, address other concerns without introducing bias into the algorithm, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So there was this kind of fine line that we really had to trend. Um, And I think really when we, when we got the buy-in to go ahead and start, you know, integrating the algorithm Mm -hmm. into um, our control system, uh, which was actually kind of, it was like a, a big day, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, really, I think the most pivotal moment was when we just when we sat down and we decided, look, like the criteria that we were, were that we were given specifically for diacetyl reduction was that um, 
we wanted to have our prediction across what, what we would assume would be our theoretical and our uh, test data set um, within a certain time window. But really, that's on the x-axis of, you know, um, uh, logistic regression that's is sort of in like an exponential decay. So when you get to that point where you're approaching the um, specification limit, um, a relatively long window in time is a very small uh, decrease in diacetyl or um, offset in diacetyl on the, on the y-axis. So mm -hmm. when we were thinking about it, I was like, well, why don't we just change our metric to look at um, how far off we are in the diacetyl concentration? We know that there's some instrument uncertainty with, with each measurement we're taking. So sure. um, as you are fitting the curve um, throughout um, that specific diacetyl reduction, um, we're building in some uncertainty. And if we could show that we're, we're, the algorithm is actually predicting that endpoint within the instrument uncertainty, it's as good as having all those measurements there. Mm -hmm. um, and once we were able to do that and explain how you know, significant that was, that's really when we started moving forward with using algorithm and operations. Awesome. So how did it, so how did it change for the people in production once, once this, because it sounds like you have it in and it's working now and, and people are relying on it. So how, how did it, how did it change like the day-to-day, -day, uh, production, you know, what kind of impact did it have? You know, what, I guess, what are some of the positive outcomes that you would say, um, once you're able to get this up and up and running? Yeah, I think um, really where it starts to um, kind of change the daily activities is we have fewer samples that need to be run through the um, uh, the GC or the gas chromatograph mm -hmm. um, for that diacetyl. And also with um, our uh, apparent degree of fermentation model, that's a, a brewer um taking a manual measurement and, and inputting that data in the database. So if we can uh, decrease the number of manual measurements and sample collection throughout the cellar, uh, that frees up a little bit of time. Uh, mm -hmm. Specifically for the, the uh, GC though, uh, there's a lot of um, flavor compound identification projects that we really wanted to start working on. And um, really that GC was being uh, bogged down with, I shouldn't say bogged down because it, it's pretty essential that we measure diacetyl. Mm -hmm. um, but there wasn't a whole lot of um, time personnel wise or, or uh, sample capacity wise on the GC to start doing those, I guess, more interesting like uh, hot compound analysis and mm -hmm. uh, that kind of stuff. So I think as we start to use both the models more and more, um, it frees up time for our QA technicians and our brewers to be more creative and get the information they need to make better beer. Wow. Wow. That sounds like a pretty, pretty awesome thing actually, because you know, the way that I'm seeing it is it's, it's like, okay, there's a, um, you know, there's this process that, that, that you have to go through and there's all this manual testing that has to be done to be able to kind of like really see what's happening. 
mm-hmm. within these uh, within these batches and you know what the flavor is going to be like specifically. You know, not not only is a batch going to come out, you know, acceptable within the limits, but you know what what's happening um, with these with these profiles and that kind of stuff. And and you have to do all this testing, and it's it's just a somewhat of a naturally restrictive process, right? To to how yeah. much how much work they can put into it and, and really, but by by reducing um, reducing some of this, uh, some of the sampling and testing and things like that. And then, um, and then, and relying on the models and the predictive, predictive nature of what you've designed, they, they can start, if they start experimenting, they can get some feedback that otherwise, you know, or they can get some, I guess, feedback loop coming, coming back to them as far as if it's working or not. And, and, and then when they actually try it saying, oh yeah, that actually worked. And so they just, I guess it just kind of gives them this capability that they really didn't have before, um, you know, either, you know, through, through whatever, whatever reason it was either too costly or it just wasn't possible. Um, yeah. I, and it was, it was, I feel like more of a workflow thing. There just mm-hmm. wasn't enough time yeah. <laughs> to yeah. get to those projects. Too. Sure. But, um, yeah. Like there's, I think, uh, now that we have that foundation and, um, we've gone through the process, of using data to make decisions that originally we all thought we couldn't do. Mm-hmm. You know? um, mm-hmm. That I guess the assumption was the only way to really know um, was to take a measurement. And I think right. we've gone through that process. I think that that opens the door for us um, at the at, at Deschutes to you know, bring other uh, pieces of um, AI into our process and mm-hmm. into our business um, and maybe at a more rapid pace uh, in the future because we've kind of gone through those initial steps and we know, right. How, right. Uh, you know, we know the pitfalls, we know what we, what we, what works and what doesn't. Right. Uh, and I think that we also have the example of, of these two projects that, um, are still in terms of fully functional, uh, they're still in their infancy, but mm-hmm. I think as they, as they grow, I think the actual demand to have more of a, um, data, um, data-based solution, um, is going to just increase. So what's the, uh, you know, what's, what's been the feedback now from the brewers and the management and QA and those, those folks, I mean, is there, has there been any like key takeaway with, with that group as far as with those groups, as far as how, you know, because I know, because I know like, um, I've seen it in, in other organizations and, and work that I've done that there's this challenge of, uh, of acceptance, right. And even, mm-hmm. even after you've had some success is still, you know, it, it, it can be one of these things where the first time something goes wrong, uh, people just aren't, aren't necessarily open to change as much as, as, you know, as we all think we are maybe. So, I yeah. mean, do you, I mean, what's the, what's the sentiment? How do you, do you feel it? Cause it sounds like you've maybe uh, turned a corner here. Um, you know, what, what's your feelings on that? Yeah. I mean, we, that we definitely, I feel like gotten, um, sort of the buy-in that we needed to really move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but that, maybe is more at a, a higher level. Um, mm-hmm. And I think when it, you know, it's, it's like you kind of mentioned, like it, it only takes one time 
for somebody right. to, to lose trust uh, in in the model. So we're really trying to address, you know, those misses when they do happen as as fast as possible with the mm-hmm. best explanation that we have mm-hmm. or that you know we can calculate and. Um, a lot of times it comes down to, you know, like it was a manual data entry error or something like that, you know, and I think that, um, when you, when you kind of, when you kind of explain it in terms of what the, you know, it may be an algorithm, but it needs, it needs a good input from the human, uh, side, uh, you know, right to really be effective and and it's kind of this relationship uh which sounds kind of weird but uh, yeah. you know and getting to that point where that understanding is like oh like what i do affects the output and so you know, it i think when that has once that has started to be understood and and that trust has kind of come back and in, into what um what we're trying to do Right, right. That well, has been has been pretty pretty pivotal, but you know, in terms of, I guess, just how uh, how much we're using it, I think that there still are some um, there still is some mistrust, like like I said. Right. You know, we're we're addressing that, and we have the capability to to. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it'll take time, right? And um, it, it depends on the organization and the need. And, and there's a lot of other, you know, factors that, that come into play um, with, any, with any company and, you know, the culture of the company. Um, but I really commend you on, on, you know, staying with it and getting as far as you have, because that's, a, that's no small, um, no small feat. And, you know, I think that you're actually you know, out of, uh, out of a lot of the customers and people that I've seen that are, they're talking about this, you, you and Deschutes have, has seemed to be in the f- forefront as far as going further with it than most companies have. And so I think that's, that's super, super exciting. And, and we're going to probably have to wrap up here shortly, but I did want to, um, just throw one more question at you. And that is, um, what do you, what are you, um, what are you looking for to do next? You know, maybe the next year here coming up as far as from where you are now, what, what are your, what are some of the plans that you're hoping to um, to um, put into action, and maybe some of the things that you want to achieve? Uh, I think some of the some of the bigger projects that we have lined up. Um, you know, I kind of mentioned freeing up some uh, some capacity for for the uh, gas chromatography and mm-hmm. more like flavor compound analysis, and I think that. Um, really if we can start um, collecting a lot of data about you know s- specific hop varieties and the flavor compounds that exist um, and the uh, impact that has on the beer so kind of mm-hmm. combining more of that um, sensory component with the quantitative side of the raw materials um, I think that we could, you know, come up with a good data structure and model to really assist with recipe development, where we could say, like, these are the things that we're looking for uh, in this new product. And this is the fastest way we can get there or the best approach to do so. And I think that that's something that we've talked about internally for, you know, 
uh, a while now mm-hmm. that um, as we you know move forward with with using our data uh, to make better decisions, I think that's something that's gonna um, really have a lot of weight behind it. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's really cool. Um, yeah, so Kyle, like I said before, I'm a big fan of uh, Deschutes Brewery and your beer. Um, I just had some the other day. <laughs> so so I personally appreciate the work that you're doing. <laughs> and I know these, these times are weird right now. And so, uh, uh, you know, we're all just trying to, uh, you know, try to do what we can do here. But uh, anyway, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to... Um, to, you know, to do this uh, interview and, uh, and, um, you know, I definitely wish you the best as far as what you're, you know, what you're going to do next. And I'm looking forward to meeting, meeting you in person someday and, you know, seeing how, how things are progressing. Uh, so anyway, this has been, uh, this has been really great. And so if people want to find out more about you online, do you have a, an email or contact information you want to share? Uh, sure. My email um, is K-K-O-T-A-I-C-H at deschutesbrewery.com. Awesome. Well, okay. Um, all right, folks, that's it for today. I'm Lonnie Bowling, and I hope you will join me again uh, next time for uh, the Time Lords podcast.